to uh, Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1, um, if you're using the ESVs at the end of the pews, that's on 503. If you're using the NIVs there in the middle of the pew back, that's 750. Go to Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, Ezra, and then you've arrived in Nehemiah. Uh, and Nehemiah is a fantastic book. Lord willing, in the coming weeks we'll begin our new series on 1 Peter, but the Lord has been working on my heart in some ways and impressed upon me that I ought to preach on them, so here we are. Um, we're going to read this in two chunks. We're going to go eventually through 2 verse 8 from chapter 1, but I want to read chapter 1 in its entirety first, and then we'll go from there. But before we do, let's, let's pray and ask for the Lord's blessing upon the reading and teaching of His Word. Lord, we thank You that You have ordained and set aside for a special purpose the reading and preaching of Your Word, that You might grow us in Your grace and strengthen our faith. And so this morning we come believing and trusting and having faith that You will grow us this morning. Help us by Your Spirit to those ends. In the name of Jesus we ask it. Amen. Nehemiah chapter 1, uh, verses uh, 1 through 11a. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it had happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked him concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exiles in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem was broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the Lord God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember uh, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you're faithful... I, if you, excuse me, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you're dis- dis- dispersed be under the farthest skies, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall indeed stand forever. So last week we talked about how the Lord uses us for kingdom extension through the giving, especially to the church and, and even more so uh, to missions. Remember, he keeps his money He owns all the money in the world, but he keeps his money in our pockets. And this morning I want to talk on the other side. That God has strategically placed you and me in this time, in this season, in this place, in this position in which you find yourself, to be agents of kingdom extension for his glory, as we see with the story of Nehemiah. God has strategically placed you where you are, 
to be bold and to be faithful and to tell others about his name. Nehemiah is a fantastic book, and perhaps, depending on what Bible in a year program you're using, uh, perhaps you're there even now uh, reading through this book. I've been reading about it the last uh, couple weeks and really pouring over it. It's a book about the love, the steadfast love and provision of God and for His people, that He never forgets His promises, that He stands by them. It's about His servant Nehemiah. He's not the hero of the story. The Lord is. But about the faithfulness and boldness of his servant Nehemiah and how we use Nehemiah, a lowly sinner like you and me, redeemed by the blood of Jesus to accomplish great things for his kingdom. And in this, we see a pattern for our own lives. I'm sure you remember where we are in redemptive history in Nehemiah, but let me refresh us. Um, In 586 B.C., the third and final wave of Babylonian soldiers came and took into exile. That means they sent people away from their homeland. They came and they destroyed the temple that destroyed Jerusalem. I don't know that we can fully fathom the depths of God's people and their horror, at least the few that were still following Jesus at this point. When the temple was destroyed, the location of, of the worship of God, where the sacrifices happened, where God dwelt with his people. But in 586, Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed. And from all outward appearances, for the people who didn't know the Bible, it looked like God had forsaken his people. But he hadn't. For in 539, 539, so that was 586, now we're in 5. 39 B.C., you know these numbers go backwards. Cyrus, who had been prophesied in the book of Isaiah, he was the king of um, the Persians. And he conquered the Babylonian Empire, and soon everything that was known was under the one title of the emperor of the Persians, Cyrus. But God raised up Cyrus for a purpose. He had raised up Nebuchadnezzar in 586 to bring judgment on his people because they had forsaken him. But in 539, God raised up Cyrus to send his people back because they were crying out to him for help. So in 538, Cyrus said, you can go home. And so Zerubbabel and uh, Jeshua the priest and and others, thousands of others, 47,000 some odd all told, they went home. By 516, they had completed the temple. But the thing is, we, if we fast forward, we fast forward to Nehemiah's day. It's been five, uh, let's see, uh, it's 544. So about 150 years after the destruction of the temple, God's people are still in trouble. See, they've rebuilt the temple, but things are not going all that well for them. Why? Because they've begun to walk away from their God again. And so God raises up Nehemiah. He raises up Nehemiah to accomplish great things for his glory. Not that Nehemiah was anything special, but he was a faithful servant by the grace of God. And so we find Nehemiah in the capital of Susa. I don't know how good you are at your Persian geography. But Susa was the winter capital of the Persian Empire. It was a fortified city. It was a huge city. 
It was an important city. And, and when it came wintertime, the emperor and all of his people, all of the nobles and their families, they packed up shop and they left the summer capital and went to the winter capital where it was cooler. And this time finds us in the month of Chislev. Certainly you follow the Jewish calendar, right? You know when Chislev is. It's uh, November and December. It straddles those two months. It is the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, a mighty emperor. We don't know much about him from Nehemiah, but Ezra tells us that he had been opposed to the rebuilding of Jerusalem. So we find that Jerusalem is destroyed, as we'll talk about in a second. It's in bad shape. And the king has a stated policy against rebuilding it. Well, Nehemiah had a brother named Hanani. What a wonderful name. Who had come from Judah with certain of his buddies. So we find in verse 2, and they had an errand. They came to tell Nehemiah that Jerusalem was in trouble. Verse 3 tells us that Jerusalem was in trouble and great shame because the walls had been broken down and the gates had been destroyed. We're not sure when this destruction happened. But you can't have a city without gates. For those of you who have served in the military, imagine going to a Ford operating base. So a base that's an outpost, a fort out in the middle of enemy territory, and there are huge, gaping, 100-yard-wide holes in the, in the perimeter. You don't have a base at that point, do you? It's completely worthless as a base. Or imagine if you were to go up to some grand mansion, and there are gates to go into the mansion. And as you drive up, the gates are twisted and torn and bent out of shape. You don't know exactly what's going on in the mansion, but you know something's wrong because the gates are torn down. For a city not to have gates, for a city not to have uh, this wall system intact would mean that it would be open to anybody who had a decent-sized army. You don't even have to invade at that point because you can't defend it. Say, do what I say or I'm going to invade. You can't defend yourself. And so Jerusalem, Judah, was in great shame. They were in great trouble. We find in verses 4 through 11 that Nehemiah was very sad. Verse 4, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. The book of Nehemiah records uh, Nehemiah as a very strong man of prayer. In fact, it records nine prayers of his. Mentions or, or, or names. Uh, and it's only 13 chapters long. And so it, it, we find that Nehemiah in his position, which we'll talk about in a minute, as a man who is seeking to be faithful to the Lord, he saturates his life and his work in prayer. As we think about that God has placed us where we are for His glory, strategically placed... We must first start all of our efforts and all of our actions with deep, consistent, fervent prayer. Well, we don't have time to go into his prayer in depth here, but he accomplishes three things. First, he asks the Lord to hear his prayer and the prayers of his people. Second, he confesses and repents not only of his own sin, but also on behalf of God's people. This is a collective prayer. But third, strangely, he asks for favor with, quote-unquote, this man. This man. 
Who is this man? We have to understand that in the day, no matter who you are, no matter how much money you have, whether you're important or not, whether you have a following on Facebook or have no friends at all, everyone is just a man. We saw even with our inauguration with many presidents and uh, esteemed folks on stage, one going and one coming, each was only a man. God shows no partiality or favoritism. We find ourselves in the same boat. We all have sinned and we all need Jesus. And so Nehemiah prays that the Lord would give him favor with one man in particular. And who is that man? Well, there was one half of a verse I didn't read of chapter 1. Look at the last little bit of chapter 1. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Now we know why Hanani and his friends have come to Nehemiah of all people. Many people have brothers. But he comes to Nehemiah, his brother, because he is cupbearer to the emperor. Now we know why Nehemiah is in the winter capital of the Persian Empire, Susa. It was because he was with his boss, the emperor and king of the known world, the king Artaxerxes. Now the cupbearer is a position which we have real no analog for today. It's a, it's a very important position, but it's a unique position. His first duty was to taste the wine that made it to the king's lips. And, and do you know why he tasted the wine? It was not so that he would make sure it was a good vintage, or there weren't too many tannins, you know, or all these sorts of things. It was because if there was poison, he was the guy between the poisoner and the poisonee. And so he would die. It was a dangerous position. This was his role, to taste every bit of wine that went to the king. Now, you better believe that the king would have known this guy and known his facial expressions. You know, the king is going to be watching this guy very closely when he's taking this sip of wine. You know, heaven forbid he'd be having a bad day. He's looking for his face to get all screwed up and keel over dead. It was a potentially dangerous job, but it was also a job of honor because he had continual access for the king. They drank wine all the time. Do you know that there are very few people that have immediate access to the president? Uh, Certainly there are a few, such as his close advisors, his family, and the Secret Service, they're ubiquitous. They're there all the time. But it's very surprising. There's one person who has potentially more access than many others, and that's his photographer. There was a piece I saw online this week that said that Obama's photographer in his uh, eight years of, of time there took over two million pictures of President Obama. And that number was actually from last July. Uh, That's a lot of pictures. Think about all that this guy heard. Think about all the people he saw and all the things he had to forget. The cupbearer is very much like that. He's, He's there all the time. He has access to the king. And in some cases, he was even an advisor. We've actually found Persian art where the cupbearer was standing next to the crown prince, the the heir apparent. So Nehemiah is an important man. He is a man who loves the Lord and he has access to the king. And so we pick up in chapter 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence... The king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? 
This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen, with the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Nehemiah, four months later, after he um, finds that what has happened to Jerusalem, he allows himself to be sad in the presence of the emperor. And he's afraid. He's afraid because he knows what could happen. Not only that you're not sad in front of the emperor because you don't bring your personal stuff to the emperor, uh, but also... Because he had a stated policy against rebuilding Jerusalem. And here is his cupbearer saying, please, can we, can we build this city? But the Lord gave great grace, grace and favor. And the end result is that Nehemiah would go and he would rebuild the gates and the city and the walls. And he would bring great revival to this city. And he would even serve as governor. Well, Nehemiah was strategically located. God has strategically placed his people. He has strategically placed Nehemiah in the right place at the right time. It was no surprise to God. He wasn't searching for someone. Oh, heavens me, I wish I had somebody close to the king of Persia. This was foreordained. This was orchestrated. This was planned for the foundation of the world. And guess what? Where we are has similarly been laid out and planned long ago. And he has strategically placed you and me just like his servant Nehemiah. That he might use us for kingdom extension where we work, where we live, and where we play. Think about Nehemiah. Here was the one Jew, okay? There are 120 provinces in the, uh, in the, in the Persian Empire. 120 with lots of people groups. And here is Nehemiah, a Jew who loves the Lord, who is cupbearer of the king. He not only loved the Lord and loved his people, but he also had access to the king. Talk about strategically located. But he has strategically located you and me similarly with our neighbors and our friends, with people we work with, we play with, those whom we love, those whom we struggle to love. You are around people that I will never be around. And I'm around people you will never be around. And and individually, you're all around people that other people will never be around. And perhaps you might be the only believer that this person knows. Certainly, King Artaxerxes didn't have a lot of devout Jews running around his temple or his his palace. But there was Nehemiah. Do, Do we have the faith? Do we have the boldness? Do we have the faithfulness to be like Nehemiah? Open our mouths and start talking about Jesus with other people? 
Are we faithful to the Lord in these things? See, Nehemiah was strategically located. We are strategically located. And Christ was strategically located. Think about this. Nehemiah was the cup bearer, but Christ was the bearer of our sins. Nehemiah had access to the king, but Christ was the king. Nehemiah's boss claimed to be the king of kings. We all know that it is a title that only the Lord of Lords has. He was strategically located that we might be saved. But you know, through this story we also see, this true story by the way, this true story that God had him in a strategic timing. What if the Lord had, what if the king rather had sent Nehemiah on an errand? What if he hadn't been there when Hanani had shown up? What if he hadn't chosen the right time to bring it up, King Artaxerxes? Certainly the what ifs are unhelpful in God's kingdom and that he sovereignly ordains or things, all things. But think about this. He ordained that Nehemiah wouldn't only be in that place, but he would be in that time at that exact time to bring it up to King Artaxerxes. Remember the story of Queen Esther? How the Lord used her to save his people from destruction when Haman had tried to destroy the Jews. We read of her uncle's, Uncle Mordecai's words in Esther 4.14. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. As we think about, if you include the two houses that we moved from before we got married... Uh, we have moved, I think, six times in eight and a half years of marriage. <laughs> yeah, I hate moving. Uh, hopefully we won't move for a long time, Lord willing. Uh, but as I think about all the people that I've had seasons of interaction with, with the, the potheads that live next to me in Birmingham, to the guy that kept threatening to kill everybody in Birmingham, our neighbor, to um, the high official in our state government, I won't mention his name, who lived next to us in our apartment in Montgomery, to the drug dealers who lived next to us uh, on Winona Avenue, and then our neighbor, um, the atheist. And as I think about our neighbors now in Bruton, uh, these are seasons of time. Seasons of time seem to go slower and last longer in small towns. These are still seasons. The Lord has put us into contact with different people. Has not God raised you up for such a time as this? Strategically placed. That he might use you for his glory. This is certainly what, what the Lord did with Christ, his son. As we think about all the things that the Lord orchestrated in order for Christ to come, a road system upon which the, uh, the, the apostles could take the good news with the Romans, that the Greek, the Greek was the common language spoken all over the world, that there'd be one tongue, that the gospel might be proclaimed in. Think about the census of Caesar Augustus, this great sinner, but the Lord used the census to bring Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem, where it was prophesied the Messiah must be born. And so in Galatians 4, chapter, uh, verse 4, but it, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. Well, there's strategically placed, strategically timed, but also strategic preparation. Who convinced King Artaxerxes to do this? It wasn't Nehemiah. It was the Lord Jesus. It was the Holy Spirit working in the heart of this man who had no fear of God to accomplish his purposes. Just like he had used Nebuchadnezzar earlier to uh, bring judgment upon his people, the Holy Spirit paved the way that Nehemiah might find favor with this man. 
the ruler of all the known world. And so when we go forth and we are faithful and bold to tell others about the Lord Jesus, to just open our, our mouths and tell folks what He's done for us, the Lord prepares the hearts of those who hear Him. Let me tell you something. The six kids who became Christians or rededicated their lives this last weekend, all of but I think one of them has been in our, or maybe two, has been in our program for at least a year. This was not the first time they had heard the gospel. The Lord had been using those times, preparing their hearts for January 17th, 2017. And certainly the Lord prepares our hearts. Prepares our hearts to come to Him, just as He prepared the world through John the Baptist, that we might be ready. Nehemiah isn't the, story, isn't the hero of the story. The Lord is. He was fallen, just like us. He was scared. He was very much afraid, the text says. But praise the Lord that God uses broken, fallen people like you and me. Broken sticks to show the narrow way of Jesus. But may we take a page from Nehemiah's story, prepare our hearts through prayer, praying bold things, impossible things, that God's kingdom might be spread, that He might use us for great things for the extension of His kingdom where we work and where we live and where we pray until Christ comes again and makes all things new. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. Father, we thank You for how You use broken people, for You have given us this treasure um, and broken vessels. Lord, may we be broken vessels for You. Um, May our fruit and our love be evident, that people might know us by our fruit and our love, that many people might come to know you. Give us boldness. Give us a burning desire for the lost and the hurting that others may hear of your name and forever be changed. In the name of Jesus, we ask it. Amen.